NetNapAir, people are our greatest asset. And that is certainly true about the people behind the expeditious delivery of the CMV-22, the Navy's only tilt rotor aircraft. In fact, the CMV-22 went from first flight to first deployment in only 19 months, faster than any other platform in recent history. Initial operating capability was formally declared in December 2021, following a successful deployment on the USS Coral Vinson. Welcome to Airwaves, the official podcast of the Naval Air Systems Command. I'm your host, Michael Lauren Prue, and joining me today is Colonel Brian Taylor, Program Manager for PMA 275, Captain Sam Bryant, Fleet Logistics Multi-Mission Wing Commodore, and Lieutenant Commander Gordon Mull from VRM-30, Detachment 1 Officer in Charge, to talk about the behaviors and actions that enabled the program to deliver this vital capability to the fleet fast. Welcome to the show, and thank you all for joining us. Thanks, Lauren. Happy to be here. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Lauren. Really appreciate it. I want to hear about CMV-22. Why is it unique? And Captain Bryant, why is this capability so important to the fleet? Thanks for the question. I mean, the CMV is actually a different variant from the other type model series. The CV is the Air Force, the MV is the Marine Corps, and the CMV for the Navy is distinct because we added a lot more capability that's specific to the Navy mission of going long range over the water, the aircraft carrier, and other ships in the fleet. So we added more fuel to the plane, significant more amount of fuel, and then upgraded the navigation and communication suite as well as upgraded the passenger and cargo delivery system so that uh, it can meet the Navy's uh, requirements. This capability is super important to the Navy because as we look to field the air wing of the future in response to the great power competition, the ability of the, the CMV to provide flexible tilt rotor options to fleet commanders to include going to not just the CVN aircraft carrier, but to other ships in the Navy, in the U.S. Navy fleet or other ships with our strategic partners, as uh, Detachment 1 did with uh, Queen Elizabeth, with the, the British Navy. And, and then as we look to other future fight considerations where the Navy may look to put assets in uh, expeditionary basing solutions, we could provide support to those as well. So this airplane goes to a lot of different places and does a lot of different things than the aircraft that replaced the C-2 Greyhound. And we're excited about it. Back up on Commodore here also, you know, from the fleet perspective, even on the first deployment, we saw a couple of capabilities that were extremely important to the fleet. So, you know, a huge one for us that we use on this deployment actually quite a bit more so than I've seen in any other deployment I've been on is the uh, medical evacuation with this aircraft. So the C-2 itself has to take a cat shot, which is extremely violent in, in a lot of realms. This aircraft using the uh, short takeoff off the uh, aircraft carrier is a lot less violent takeoff. We actually had a medevac on deployment where they actually declined to use a C2 due to the forces it would create for the patient, where we got to come out, pick up a medevac patient, and then actually transport them straight to a hospital. The medical evacuation piece to this aircraft, I think, is going to be a, a huge plus for the Naval Fleet from here on out, as well as if we can get into hurricane assistance, disaster relief. Thankfully, we didn't have to use that, but I do see that being a big thing for this community. You know, the unique capability of this aircraft to land like a helicopter if we need to will allow us to kind of skip the middleman on this portion and be able to help out in those disaster reliefs in the future with a much more capable platform to do so. So, Lieutenant Commander, in addition to these capabilities, what behaviors were critical to the successful deployment of the CMV-22 and why? I think one of the most critical behaviors that we had on deployment, quite honestly, was resiliency. Being that this was a new aircraft, and as you, as you pointed out, you know, went from first flight to deployment in 19 months. We try to set up the best 
roadwork that we could to make this thing a successful deployment. However, we have a, a bunch of helicopter pilots, C-2 pilots, and a couple MV-22 pilots that are trying to figure out how to deploy an aircraft on a mission that only C-2 has done before. What we learned very quickly is that the C-2 model doesn't work, nor does any other model work precisely how we expected it to work. So have the resiliency to be able to try something, find out it didn't work, and then have the resiliency to go back and try something else. The different airfields that we've had to, that were a little bit more leery of letting us in just because they're not familiar with the platform and the size of the debt. So having the resiliency to be able to continuously work and figure out how to make this thing work on the first deployment, kind of paving the path for the rest of the deployments to come, really just needed that flexibility and resiliency. We learned a lot of lessons in the first year. And we continue to learn those lessons on deployment. And a lot of that was based on by the book maintenance. If we had questions, we would reach out. But the discipline to be able to do that or have to do that and not use the lessons learned, just this is the way we did it when we were playing with uh, other squadrons, was important that we learn the lessons now so that in the future, again, we don't have to relearn the lessons that other people have learned before. So, And also add those comments from uh, Lieutenant Commander Mole from a wing perspective, you know, one of the things I learned with working with the Marine Corps for quite a while as we were training on the MV before we even got the CMV is that no d- detailed plan survives first contact with the enemy. The Marines are famous for saving that. So in our case, the enemy was our compressed schedule. So the key behavior, I would say, that really helped us be successful was a mindset of, of not just by the book, but a safety mindset. The whole purpose of our mission, uh, we don't deliver troops in combat. Our, our mission is to safely provide transport for people to and from the aircraft carriers and, and around the AOR. So making sure that Lieutenant Commander Mole and his team and the program office and my team and the squadron team overseeing the detachments would stop if something doesn't look or smell right and ask the right questions. Everybody get on the same page and then move out again. To some degree, the mantra is true. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. If we were to rush to failure, we end up hurting people and breaking things. And that's, that's not what we're about. I think that was one of the real key behaviors to our success, you know, learning from, from our, um, our sister services and the vast amount of experience they had, but also questioning things as it applied to our mission. From the program perspective, you know, I really, I think it boiled down to three main things. It's a focus, commitment, and humility. The pressurized schedule really kind of kept everyone focused to the mission across the entire government, whether NAVAIR, the fleet, and the industry team on delivering this capability. Because the timeline was so compressed, it really drove us to make decisions as an organization faster. And that really kind of helped moving the entire program along. The second thing was the commitment. You know, I think we here at NAVAIR are committed. The folks the fleet were all in on this really from the get-go and the way they embraced the platform and embraced learning a new platform and really got excited about it really drove to make this first deployment and uh, to successfully field this uh, really was amazing to watch and then the you know the last is, is the humility from the program office perspective the humility of us to say hey we don't understand this mission set uh, as you know, yes we've been flying v22s for the last uh, 30 years but we haven't been doing the COD mission. And so there was a lot of moments where we needed to admit that, hey, we don't really understand this and we have to ask questions. And then also on the fleet side as well, that they had done a lot of training with the Marines, but, but kind of like uh, the Commodore was talking about, this is not a MV-22 deployment and it is not a C-2 deployment. It is a CMV-22. And so the fielding of this aircraft is going to be a little bit different. And so I, I think overall, like the, those are the three things that, that really all work together to kind of get us successfully through, you know, not just the first deployment, but, but really kind of through the stand-up of this community. 
So Colonel Taylor, what would you say your team did differently to achieve this goal? The biggest single thing that we did was to kind of keep the main thing, the main thing. And that was staying disciplined to the requirement throughout this entire process. The fielding of any aircraft system, even though this one was incredibly rapid, uh, still takes years. And uh, if you think about how fast technology matures these days, over that time period, technology is going to move on and new capabilities are going to come out. However, every time you change a system, you inevitably slow it down significantly. And so I think the overall team getting the requirements set from the get-go was really, really important. I also think, though, that an understanding of, hey, this is what first deployment is going to look like. The follow-on deployments are, are when we can field additional capabilities, but really keeping everyone true to Getting this deployment out the door with three aircraft with this capability was really, really critical to everyone. And the pressurized timeline, while I'm definitely not going to ask for it for all my programs, really did kind of help to move this one along. And Captain Bryant, from the wing perspective, what did your team do differently to achieve this goal as well? For us, the compressed time schedule, we had to really do a lot of training ahead of aircraft delivery with the Marine Corps. So we really couldn't have done this without the help of our sister service within the Department of the Navy. So we had people training in North Carolina as early as 2017 ahead of aircraft delivery to build that talent pool so that when the first aircraft showed up in June of 2020, we could hit the ground with a sprint instead of the, the traditional crawl, walk, and run. The difference with this program is a lot of things were done in parallel instead of in series. You know, it didn't just start like a natural progression. There were several lines of effort going on at once. It was really, we like to say it was a house of cards, that, but the house of cards managed to stay, stay up in this case because of the tremendous efforts of bringing all the stakeholders to the table from the fleet operators all the way up to the program office and the OEM at the table, sharing concerns, working problems real time. That was a, a key difference from uh, other programs I've worked with. So let's talk about that compressed schedule just a little bit. Uh, Colonel Taylor, what would you say were some of the key milestones that led up to IOC? It's not just delivering a bunch of aircraft out there to the fleet. Uh, what you don't see is all of the spare parts that need to be sitting in the warehouse and, and on the ship when that happens. All of the tools that are particular to the aircraft, all the maintenance procedures, all of the other things that all have to come together all at the same time that really have to be there before the aircraft shows up is what's actually really critical to getting you know any system to its uh, initial operating capability. We weren't just able to take the plan from you know 20 years ago when we rolled this out in the Marine Corps and the Air Force, dust it off, and then just execute it. We really did kind of have to take a critical look at that, but also ask the hard questions of, hey, how does this employment work? And where are the opportunities where we can learn from when we did do it on the MV and the CV side and maybe get it better this time? I think it speaks to the commitment of the overall team to make sure that all the pieces that were needed were in place. First deployment was actually getting ready to go out the door. We noticed that there were some shortfalls in the supply stock levels on the ship. And that was getting a lot of attention, but we were honest about it. We were transparent about, hey, this is where the gaps are. What are we doing to fill it? Navy Supply and DLA really came through and got us the parts onto the ship so that uh, Vincent left with the full lab cap. Some of the key milestones from the, from the wing perspective, initial operating capability was defined in our production document with testing and evaluation complete, which is developmental tests and operational tests, and then uh, one detachment 
ready to support theater security operations. So there was actually a lot to that, that IOC declaration. And we really met that declaration ahead of when the Navy actually came out with the document. Once Gordon's detachment went over the horizon and testing, operational test was complete, they just had to write the report. So the Navy was actually executing IOC earlier than the, than the document came out. For developmental tests, there's a lot of tremendous effort with our uh, developmental test squadrons, uh, HX-21. They had two aircraft and getting through all those milestones. Really, there was a lot of activity moving up to between July and August with operational tests going on at the same time as our workups for the detachment with the air wing. So we had VX-1, our operational test squadron, embedded with the detachment using the detachment aircraft with Carl Vinson doing the test vignettes in addition to doing the actual mission of workups with, with uh, our uh, COM2X with, uh, uh, with the Carl Vinson. Colonel Taylor, what would you say is special or unique about the V-22 program team? The V-22 Joint Program Office here at NAVAIR is the one program office for all the V-22s across the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Navy, and we actually have an FMS partner with Japan. I think what makes us special and unique is the fact that it is three services that all bring their unique kind of cultures and processes and procedures and mission sets to a singular office. And that really has been leveraged throughout the years on improving the value of capabilities that we've delivered. So there have been a lot of instances where one particular platform has wanted a capability on their aircraft and they funded it. And we've been able to transport that to the other platforms for little or no cost because it was already developed. And and so all three services get the benefit of this joint program office, but also it really helps kind of focus the support of the platform. You know, we, we try to make sure that everyone understands there is a single V-22 supply system. There is a single V-22 fleet support team. And that's really important because it's not the different services kind of fighting with each other for spare parts or capabilities or or focus of whether it's engineering or or logistics, but, but it's a single program office or program approach to the overall V-22 community. We don't always get it right, but we at least have the ability to kind of look inwardly when we do get it wrong and how we keep on moving it down the road. Also, I think what's interesting about the 275 team is that we've got a bunch of different service members. They bring with them really fleet relationships and there's no substitute for that. There's no substitute for being able to pick up the phone and talk to someone that you know and that you've served with and ask questions and provide support. And that's a two-way street. And so kind of like a a wise man once said that uh, you can't surge trust. So those relationships really are what are a game changer when we need to get information quickly and make decisions quickly is that if you know the person on the other side of the phone, it really, really helps. As you moved quickly to deliver CMV-22 to the fleet, what other obstacles did you face and how did you overcome them? Colonel Taylor? Like every other program, funding and budgeting for any program is always a challenge. The Navy definitely decided that they wanted this, but uh, some realities of making the budget match at the end basically slipped funding for the program out about two years, but the first deployment didn't slip. So the pressurized schedule that we keep talking about wasn't the original plan, but it's what we ended up with and what we executed. But again, by staying kind of focused on what's the requirement, what do we need to do, and being realistic about what the timelines look like and 
hey, what do we need to have in place? We're able to make it successfully happen. I think another challenge, and I'll kind of tee this up for, for the Commodore, but this was not just get the first deployment out and we're done. So the second deployment actually left before the first deployment came back. And I think that's definitely a challenge because I think the expectation is, is that you do a deployment, you come back and you have a bunch of lessons learned. And we did that process, but the second deployment was already out the door. And so I think that forced the team to be very, very thoughtful about listening to how things were going on the first deployment in real time. We didn't wait for them to come back. And so kind of incorporating some lessons learned in real time. And then the last thing inside the program office was just the humility of understanding that Yes, we've been deploying uh, MV-22s on Navy ships for 20 years. We have not been deploying CMV-22s on Navy ships. And that inside of the program, uh, we kind of had some institutional biases that we had to get over. Hey, how is this mission set going to work? And there were a lot of people that kind of had to help us see that the, the COD mission set is very different than the way that the Marine Corps implements and the 22 uh, ship. And so those are the really kind of the three things that were definitely a challenge. So, uh, you know, over to the Commodore for kind of his thoughts. I would say that one of the biggest obstacles we faced right, right from the beginning is an important distinction that this was a fleet introduction of the CMV and not just a transition like you see in some other communities. We didn't transition from the C2 to the CMV, similar to the way that a Hornet squadron would transition from regular Hornet to Super Hornet, where the the squadron turns in its jets, goes to the rag, comes out the other side fully qualified. For us, we did it as a fleet introduction. And I think that gave us some advantages over a, a simple transition because we were a brand new thing. We had a lot of resources and a lot of focus put on us from the beginning. So that helped us overcome a lot of the schedule obstacles that Colonel Taylor was talking about. You know, I can add some more on the uh, the fleet perspective as to the deployment itself. COVID, right? It was a big hurdle that we faced on deployment. A lot of carrier schedule changes also as to where they were going to operate. We had a couple different countries that were lined up that had to be canceled due to the Omicron when that came out. So the the COVID piece in itself wasn't the only thing, but those quick changes made it even more harder by the size of the, the detachment. So we go out with about 88 people on deployment. We had to plus up a little bit for this deployment based on training that we need to get accomplished for the detachment five overseas. So we were a, a very large footprint and uh, trying to work with the Navy airlift system to get priority to get the detachment moved as well as all the parts and tools that we needed to keep these aircraft up and running for the fleet became extremely difficult. I had a fantastic team under me, honestly, with the focus and drive to continue to press to do the mission. A lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings coordinating, try to get the airlifts moving in the right direction so we can get to where we need to go. Last big obstacle, I think, on deployment that we ran into is a little bit of infrastructure. Again, based on the size of the detachment that we had, a lot of the places we went to, they looked at us as a small squadron vice a detachment, which they're used to seeing. So the infrastructure piece of, of trying to figure out how we're going to work into these places that were the standard places we picked for the C2 detachments based on supply and how we get all those supplies into that specific airfield is something that we faced. And quite honestly, again, it was through the hard work of the, the detachment and PMA to get those places and those relationships built to where we actually, I think, set a good standard here for debt two to find some different places to work out of that aren't normal for the normal COD detachments that we were going out of there. So as long as we keep pressing with those things, I, I think uh, the detachments in the future should have a really good path forward. Lieutenant Commander Mull, you mentioned the size of the CMV-22. Did that make for any challenges when integrating the aircraft onto the ship? The biggest issues we had there was quite honestly just the size of the aircraft on the aircraft carrier. So 
how do we make enough space with this aircraft that takes up the entire landing area for all other aircraft on the carrier? When we take up the entire landing area, how do we get us out of the way quickly? If we have to shut down quickly due to a maintenance issue or something like that, how do we get it out of the way so other people can land when that's their only landing spot that they can go to? You know, the benefits, uh, quite honestly, we're their first deployment ever. So I think honestly, the biggest benefit that we had, the relationships that we built with both the carrier as well as the air wing was our lessons learned. We were out there trying to pave the path and uh, we did a, a fantastic meeting after deployment, all hands involved as to the lessons learned, how we can do stuff better, pass it on to debt to to make sure that they have a successful deployment and quite honestly, that we can continue to have smooth running detachments from here on out with all those lessons learned and, and how we improve in the future, so. There's certainly a lot of challenges to overcome and a huge accomplishment to meet IOC. What would you say was the single most important element of your success over everything else? Captain Bryant? You just heard Lieutenant Commander Mole's description of what it was like to be on deployment. And that's really what the single most important thing was, is the leaders that were out there, the leaders we had at the PMA, the, the leaders we had with OEM. It was this team that was really the key to success. I was able to hand select the COs, the XO of the squadron, the, the OIC that goes on the detachment. These high quality individuals and pretty much everybody on that detachment were the best we could put forward. And they really performed at the top level. And that was true across the entire enterprise of V-22. We had great program manager, really focused people from the OEM. It's really amazing what you can accomplish because a lot of people were very skeptical at high levels, whether or not we could pull this off with the time frame we had. It was really a testament to the, the individual and collective efforts on the team that, that made it happen. We learned a lot of things from this deployment, as Lieutenant Commander Mole mentioned. We broke down a lot of misconceptions, proved that there's a lot of things that could be done that people thought would not work with V-22, and it, it did work. And then we also learned some other things that we need to improve on. So pretty impressed with this team. It's humbling just to be part of it. And Colonel Taylor, from the program perspective, what do you believe is the single most important element of your success? Really, I think it comes down to relationships, the personal relationships between personnel here at the PMA, the fleet and industry, and really kind of the ability for all of us to be honest and transparent with each other and a willingness to work together to, to solve issues as they arose. It comes down to trust, but also a, a willingness to do things a little bit differently. And the willingness to adjust to that is important to staying focused on hey, well, what's the end goal here that we're all trying to get to? And as long as everyone stays focused on that, it's good. But uh, really kind of the trust between the parties and the people, it really was what I would say was the single most important element that, that kind of kept everything together. So Colonel Taylor, tell me about the PMA 275 culture. What is unique about it? And how did you instill the culture through the team? And how are you going to sustain it? It's not instilled. It's definitely a process. So as much as I would love to just kind of wave a magic wand and change culture, you know, culture change is incredibly hard and it is an incredibly long process. It is requiring me to be incredibly humble and understanding that as much as I want to drive change quickly, sometimes that just doesn't move as fast as I want it to. But the four things that I've asked the PMA 275 team to do since my first day here is build a cohesive team, deliver complete solutions, be biased for speed and get better every day. And so, you know, it, again, it, it starts with a team and a cohesive team. And there are a lot of elements of that, 
But a lot of it comes to a lot of the stuff we've really been talking about. It's about trust, relationships, being able to disagree with each other honestly and openly and have it not be a personal attack to understand that, hey, we're all trying to make the overall system better. You know, delivering complete solutions is super important. It's really the only thing we do here. And whether that solution is a technical procedure or an aircraft, everything in between has to be done, delivered with the system to the fleet user. So whether that's spare parts, whether that's training, whether that is the instructions on how to maintain it, how to use it, all of those things have to be in place. It's not just kicking one thing out the door and then saying we're done, but it's not just when we get the first thing out, it's when is the last thing actually sundowned at the end. That's the lifespan that we need to be looking at. And so when we're talking about delivering a complete solution, the complete solution is the entire life cycle of whatever is the system capability, whatever it is that we're delivering. Being biased for speed, we are not an incredibly fast moving organization. And some of that's a little bit by design based on like budget cycles and stuff like that. But anywhere that we can get going faster, I think we need to. But we also need to kind of change the way we do business a little bit and get some solutions out there quicker to get it into the hands of the fleet users and then let them come back to us with, hey, I love this aspect of it. You need to change this little bit here. The last thing is get better every day. That's all of us need to thinking about, hey, how can we learn from where we got it wrong today? And then how do we apply that and don't make the same mistakes again moving forward? So that what we are trying to build here at, uh, at PMA 275, I, I will say that I am unbelievably fortunate to be part of such an amazing team. There is so much knowledge in this program office that goes back to the beginning of the V22 program. And I am just absolutely in awe on a daily basis at the knowledge that people have at the tip of their tongue when you ask a question and people can tell you not just what the answer is, but how we got to that point. So this team is simply amazing and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Absolutely. So Captain Bryant, what are your priorities for the joint V22 program office? The interesting thing about this program is, you know, it is a joint program, but every different member of the joint program is in a different part of their life cycle with respect to their uh, TMS. So the Navy is still very much in procurement and delivery of aircraft and new stand-up of our detachments. So the, my priority for the program office is to maintain that focus, despite the fact that the Marine Corps is looking towards sustainment and and as well as the Air Force, I'm very much focused on building new teams. I have a lot of detachments still to stand up here on the on the West Coast to deploy and, and switch out with the C2 detachments on the aircraft carriers here shortly. So a lot of heavy lifting to do. So keeping OEM, our supply chain and our industry partners and the PMA focused on the continual standup of the Navy program is going to be important for me. So from our conversation today, I can tell you all have a lot to be proud of. But Captain Bryant, I really would like to hear from you. What was your proudest moment during this first deployment? For me, it's not so much just one moment. As a parent, I have two kids about to go off to college, and, and this was a very similar situation. And then when we had the first detachment ready and they went over the horizon, it's like, you know, bye, good, make good choices. We're, we're, we're all supporting you. But ultimately, just like a parent, I'm extremely proud of the fact that they were able to go over the horizon and have a safe and effective deployment. We had a lot of challenges. There were emergencies to deal with. There was COVID, there was all these things. And we had great leaders who we put a lot of faith and trust in 
gave them the tools they needed and they went out and knocked it out of the park. So that was really my proudest moment. And then it's not just a one-off. I've got with Attachment 2 on Abe Lincoln doing it again right now. And they're also doing very well. So it's that sort of amalgam of all those moments together where you're just really proud of your team and you don't have to micromanage because they're doing it. Awesome. So let's wrap today's podcast with a bit of advice for other program managers and integrated product teams. What can they learn from your program's success? Colonel Taylor? I'd say the biggest thing is that kind of at all levels of the organization that really we need people to be leaders and not managers. And that's for all of us that that are parts of teams and really most importantly, leading teams, you know, define the behaviors and the results that you want and that you expect from your team, but give them the latitude to figure out how to get there. We tend to be very prescriptive sometimes, and that really comes as a detriment to innovation and also to people learning and opportunities to grow. So you typically don't learn anything from success. Really, it's when you get something wrong that that you learn, hey, how do I not let that happen again? Have some insight and not oversight is what we try to say here is that be aware of what's going on, but let your team leaders run their teams. And when things do go wrong, you know, hey, pick up the pieces, address it quickly, but make sure everyone understands like, look, it's the result that, that was unsatisfactory here. Hey, good on you for taking the opportunity and taking the initiative to, to try something different. Okay, now we know that doesn't work. And what we found is that, hey, when you let people kind of go and try some different things, it actually works out a lot more often than, than you might think. But the other part of it, though, is, you know, when you empower your people and, and you let them actually run their own programs, it's amazing how much that does for morale. And a lot of it is just, hey, I I trust you as a good steward of the fleet. We all know kind of what the ultimate customer is on this. And if everyone stays focused on that, let them go. And and we'll come up with different ways of getting there. And and then the last piece of it, though, is every now and then, once a quarter, a few times a year, whatever, hey, take a step back and, and talk about Hey, what have we tried? What didn't work? What did work? But to kind of have that discussion about like how we're doing business, I think is important. It's very easy to get head down and just kind of, I'm just going to plow through all of this work because there's always more stuff to do than there is time to do it. But but actually kind of taking a moment to reflect is so incredibly important, but also talking across your organization on, Hey, we tried this and it worked or, Hey, we tried this and it, it was a mess. So don't do that. If we can learn things from other people's mistakes, that makes the overall enterprise better. I just want to say a big thank you to all of you for joining us to share your knowledge and your lessons learned and telling us how PMA 275 built relationships, empowered team members to overcome challenges, get real, get better and move fast to deliver a much needed solution to the fleet. Of course, you can hear more examples of successful behaviors for winning culture by tuning into the Airwaves podcast on all your favorite listening apps. And that's it for this edition of Airwaves. Thanks for listening.